Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. All right, welcome to the Dirk Show. I'm Higher Peaks, and I'm sitting here with Dan from Micropose. Uh, now, Micropose is a—I would say it's fair to say it's a mushroom cultivation uh, supply. Yeah, yeah. So we we try to custom design stuff and supply some basic stuff for the mycology industry. Yeah. yeah now I've been using you guys. I've been uh, in the cultivation scene for about a year and a half, and. I want to bring you on because you guys have uh, not only a high quality product, but it's very uh, affordable. So there's a lot of value there. Um, and I've been uh, using it since day one. I started out with your filter patches and moved on to a couple other things since then. Can you uh, start from the beginning and kind of tell us all how you started and, uh, and where it's at right now? So I started out... Uh I was home growing some oyster mushrooms and I was trying to sell at farmer's markets in the, I was using the jar technique cause I hadn't really gotten into bags yet. And, uh, I noticed that it took a really long time to put everything together, the, the pillow stuffing and the injection ports. And at that time I was still running multi-score too. So I wanted to kind of make something just for myself that, that would make the jar preparation process a little bit easier. Um, and so I ended up making, uh, a filter patch with adhesive perimeter so that, that I could, I could make it happen faster. And it was only a couple of years later that, uh, I introduced it to the market. I didn't really think of it as a product myself. It was, it was more so for myself. So now we were talking earlier about this, but there's a, a, a rating or something on the actual filter patch itself that you use to, to kind of do some, to, to actually have some purpose behind it. Right. So, so the materials that I was finding, there weren't really very many materials that had the airflow rating, uh, like the 0.3 and the 0.2 microns that most people use to, to judge whether something's suitable or not. Um, instead, they have these things called IP ratings. It's IP67 or IP68. Um, and what that stands for, I think, I think what the rating measures is at three feet or one meter depth, uh, how long does it resist water? Uh, you know, without letting it pass through. Right. Uh, and so I asked some of these manufacturers if they could do an airflow rating, which, which what, what it does is it, it passes a certain amount of air through the material and it detects how much uh, particulate matter allows, it, it allows through. And uh, the first stuff that I got was an IP67 rating and they did the air test for me and it was rated at, at like 99.99% uh, at 0.22 microns. And that's the first thing that I was, I'm sorry, I lost you there. You said that was the first what? The first product I released uh, was was a headlamp 
but those are always rated at IP67. And then we use that material, and it was it was proven to, to filter at 0.22 micron. And uh, so that's the first product I released. And then what I did was I just added a, a high-temp adhesive to it so that it could withstand autoclaving. So it was pretty much a standard filter material that I added uh, higher-temp adhesive to, so that it survived a little bit better in, in autoclaving. So you can get multiple uses. That was the first thing I came up with. Well, and that was highly successful. I mean, it works great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was it was unexpected because the market was kind of small at the time. So I just I gave away half my inventory for free to accounts that had anywhere between five hundred and a couple thousand followers. And, and in the mushroom industry in twenty nineteen, that was that was considered a pretty big following. I bet. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I that's pretty much said. If you like it, share it. If you don't like it, tell me why. And that that's pretty much how Micropost started. That is so cool. <clears throat> did you find, just real quick so I don't forget, did you find that growing uh, gourmet mushrooms was difficult? No, it's, it's actually pretty easy. So I did uh, I did hardwood substrate, and I didn't really have any other ingredients. And the way that I prepared mine was the same way that some people prepare flour in a bucket. So yeah. I took my uh, hardwood pellets and poured boiling water over it. Uh, and then once it cooled down to room temperature, I poured my grain uh, inside of the bucket and then put the top on and then mixed it. And then I just poured it into the bag and then had it colonized. It was a very unconventional method, but it still worked out. So it's actually, it's pretty easy. If you're using a rigorous strain, you don't, you don't really have to worry too much about contamination. Especially those oysters, right? They, they actually, uh, they, they spawn pretty quickly. Yeah. And they're monsters. They'll, they'll fight through anything. But yeah. <laughs> oysters are very easy to grow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then you moved on to, was it the, I think you actually moved on to the lids, right? The jar lid covers? Uh, so the next thing that I thought would pair well with it, and it was actually by demand, uh, somebody just made an offhand comment on Instagram. They said, hey, if you can make a junction, an injection port that's fast, I'd buy those too. <laughs> oh, right, yes. So, yeah, so, so the next thing I did, uh, because I guess the, the best progression of things was to move on to an injection port uh, after adding filtration. And so I made um, the silicone injection ports, which is a pretty much a silicone foam sheet that we cut into injection ports and added a high temp adhesive. And that came out probably within four months of the, of the first release of the, the filters. And those, those did really well. People like those. So they use those on bags and, and on, uh, on lids and, and so, yeah, that was, that was number two, which did pretty well. And I, I've used those before. Do you find those are better than the, like the rubber ones? I don't know what material they're made out of, but just the solid rubber stopper looking style. Uh, I, I think the advantage of the adherable ones is that they're faster um, because your, your preparation, you don't have to really drill any holes. I've, I've punched holes with screwdrivers and just stuck them on and they do just fine. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, they're not really better or worse. It, it depends on your system as far as the butyl rubber stoppers. Yeah. Um, but they do make things faster. And if you're doing large scale production, which a lot of people do on, on bags and on, on jars, this definitely saves you labor time. Yeah. You don't have to tap holes or anything like that, but yeah, they work pretty well. Well, and obviously the, so advan you <laughs> sorry, I was just going to say the advantage too, is obviously the bags. You can just stick them right on and you're, you're good to go. Right. So have you used them on bags or jars? How did you use them? Uh, well, to be honest, I've done both. Uh, but funny enough, I still drilled holes and it's still used, you know, as an inherable port. Um, 
but on the bags, I just stuck them on the bags and just poked through them, you know? Um, yeah. They held up well, pretty well for you. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I mean, just fine for me. I, I even put them through like there was one thing about mushroom cultivation. You try to find info online and there's 17 different things, you know, that's offered up. So you really don't know. You kind of just got to start trying. So I, uh, I, uh, just stuck them right on the bags and I threw them in the, uh, uh, pressure cooker and, and sterilized them and they worked out fine. They held up just fine and stayed stuck and bags came out fine, spawned out fine, no contamination. So, I mean, <laughs> I had no complaints. <laughs> yeah. So I like how you said that, you know, when you go online, there's like a million different opinions on stuff. Where yeah. do you usually go for your information on cultivation? Where do you, where do you find that consistently you get good information? Oh, that, you know, that's a difficult question. I mean, I, I don't know that I ever do. I, <laughs> I honestly kind of get a generalized idea of what people are doing in the different methods. And then I go to my pseudo lab, I guess is what you call it. And I start trying things. <laughs> yeah. It's like, where, where are people getting consistently good results? And you're like, okay, I'll, I'll waste a couple of hundred bucks on that. See if I can duplicate that. I mean, like honestly, you let other <laughs> guinea pigs first. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I just, I'm the fan of the FAFO. I mean, I just learn quicker usually because as you, as we both said now, it's like there's just so much and so much opinion and so many varied directions. And, you know, it's almost like you kind of just got to, like you say, pick one and and learn something from it and, you know, change it up. So I, like I said, yeah. from the beginning, I was really lucky. I found you as a, as a source of uh, products because there are so many, because the, the way the, the culture and industry is set up right now, it's, this gray area, um, but some states are coming aboard, some aren't, uh, yeah. and so it's this weird area right now. And to find good pricing on good quality is literally—I mean, it's, that's minimal. It's hard to find. And so uh, there's so many people doing home tricks and you know homemade things, which is great. I think it's very resourceful, um, but you know. Uh, there's some serious cultivators out in there that even if they're not doing it for the end result, they're doing it for the process and, and some testing in between. So, uh, to have this good stuff is great. And you've helped with, like we talked about earlier too, the plastic issue, you've helped with that by like these jar lids and, uh, you know, reusable products. You're what you'll talk about soon here, the polypropylene Petri dishes. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, most of my stuff is, is one size fits most. It's kind of hard to be universally relevant to everyone, I suppose. But yeah, so the, the, the jar lids are made from a recycled material, uh, which is, it's really hard to find um, an, an IP rated recycled material, but I, I talked them into it. Um, but yeah, the, the multiple use thing I think is where, where I'm, I'm trying to kind of help the, uh, the injection ports can't be recycled. It's, it's impossible to recycle silicone effectively. So we, we kind of have to take the L on that one. But yeah, the, the Petri dishes, um, that was my latest release that I actually came out with. Um, and you said you haven't had a chance to uh, use the polypropylene dishes yet. I should send them to you. Yeah, I haven't. But, uh, I 
I, I, yeah, I could, I would just try one or two and just to try them. But, uh, the polystyrene is, is the ones I, that's what I'm used to on the market. You know, like we said, a lot of Amazon orders in the past, (laughs) but, um, you know, I even like the idea of having your name on the product too, because it kind of, it, in my, this is just my opinion, but in my opinion, it represents a sort of quality. So, um, I like to see that on there. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of, yeah, we were talking about this before I, I put my name on it, um, as kind of a sort of marketing so that when people share their, their really nice plates or, you know, their, their, what do they call it? Throwing ropes when they, when they got their really ropey mycelium plates. Right. So the name on there would kind of pay for a kind of a break even price point for me. So yeah, that's the whole reason I put them on there. But I I found that people quite like the name on it. So yeah, it might be an endeavor I get more seriously into in the future, but we've just, as of this week, sold out of our polystyrene dishes. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad about that. <laughs> UL and I'm I'm not surprised, and uh, it's it's a great service to the <laughs> the community on that because man, it's really hard to find as many petri dishes as you can go through. I, I mean, I find my work. I'm I probably do a little more than I should, but ah, uh, so much fun on the auger work. So, um, but I have not had a chance to try the probably propylene. Have you had good feedback now that you've had some market testing on it? Yeah, so some people come back to me personally in my inbox and I ask them, you know, deep questions about it. Like, are, are you having a good time autoclaving it? Like, is it, is it, you know, maintaining its shape? I, that was my biggest worry when I made those. Is, is it going to warp on you after a few cooks? Or, you know, are people really going to slaughter the bottoms of them and they're just not going to carry over very many cooks because the, the razor blade's scratching it? Yeah. Um, as much as that was a worry of a lot of people, I, I haven't really found that to be true. I've, I've got guys that are reporting back to me that have four and five generations on the same sleeve of plates and, and they're not marred up too bad and, and, uh, they haven't, they haven't been misshapen or anything. So I'm, I'm very happy that, that my worries, uh, haven't really been an issue. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So, um, for all the guys that are wondering how to actually reuse them, cause there's still no, no standard operating procedure. I was leaving that to everyone else. Uh, so what we do to reuse our plates is we slide them in the little tiny one pound, uh, unicorn bags or any, any kind of polypropylene sleeve. And I just fold them over and I run them at 15 PSI for 15 minutes. And I find that that does the trick and you unravel them under flow and you, and you do your lab work. So, Sounds and good. some people, I guess you can add a rubber band around when you fold over the bag, you could put a rubber band around it so that it doesn't, you know, if you're worried about water getting in it, you can keep it kind of waterproof. Mm-hmm. Just stand the bag up and it should be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how's the, since I haven't even seen one in person, how was the, um, how was the visibility through them? Um, so of course with polypropylene, you're not going to get that, that glass clarity you do with polystyrene, but you get surprisingly good clarity out of it um i managed to not have to make them super thick they're precisely the same dimensions and weight well roughly the same weight as industry standard 90 millimeter dishes so the the dishes that everybody's used to um it's pretty much the same with with very little clarity loss and that's another thing that i was i was trying to get so i had to i had to fight with formulation on, on how to get that so the first models that they sent me for testing were not very clear at all. They withstood temperatures and, and cooking and 
you know, they were durable, so they weren't getting cut up very badly. But man, the clarity was horrible. So that was something I had to fight for for, for quite a while to get that right. Yeah, and I'm <clears throat> I'm sure that there. Are, I'm sure that what I see here is I see two different types of dishes that can be used for multiple. Like I would like to have both. <laughs> right. Right. Cause like there's so many uses you can use for the clear ones and like, you know, uh, some of the work that would be done in the lab would be, uh, great with the clear ones, but then to have reusable, uh, the polypropylene reusables for the other half of the work would be awesome too. Yeah. So I, what I've noticed, I guess, in sales, looking at the back end is a lot of the guys that are producing dishes for sale. Right. That, you know, you know, they're doing a ton of dishes and they're, you know, they're, they're trying to keep fair prices for everyone in their businesses. They're going for the polystyrenes. But a lot of the home guys that are doing maybe 20 or 40 plates a week and they want to preserve genetics or whatever, they're, they're using a lot of those PP dishes. Absolutely. So I guess there's, there's kind of a home for everything. I understand that the polypropylene dishes aren't really going to be for everyone. So if you're, making a lot of plates it's just not feasible to sterilize you know 500 plates every time you want to do a batch or something like that sure 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 but it's great you got both (laughs) yeah and right for the i'll try to get more of those polystyrenes in i know if people are you know they were were yelling at me he's like what are you gonna get them in so i gotta get i gotta get more of the disposables in we're working on that one yeah we're kind of concentrating on our tub project right now and and hoarding funds like little rats trying not to trying not to blow too much money on these on the other projects but i'm really excited to talk about that and i'm holding back because I, I can't wait for that uh particular product um and i want to let you know even from the beginning i switched to your polyfilm quick because uh you know i used parafilm because that was supposed to be the standard and it was all expensive and and this and that and i just found nothing but problems with it <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah yeah so what were you getting it, was, it, was it ripping on you or what it was, it, the, was what were the issues it was tearing it was drying out sometimes unless you order from a even more expensive source you get old boxes and then when you get old boxes it's dry already i mean there's just so many issues with that material it's almost like you have to spend extra money to get an extra fresh box from a well-known place uh, so you can have it perform like it's supposed to perform anyway, but it's such a, right. such a random thing on the internet, what you're going to get. And I don't like to spend 50 or $60 to get a box of something that goes so quick. So the second I used the polyfilm, it was like night and day. I'm like, this is like, <laughs> let me save 75% and get better performance. And as far as, yeah. you know, as far as you like, know- the contamination and stuff, that's all BS, man. I, I have I have great performance with it, and it stays on there. Yeah. You know, you have to cut it clean, but it stays on there just fine. Yeah. So do you know who uh, Chip of the Cat Mushrooms is? Oh, for sure, yeah. So, I, and I, I learned a lot of stuff from him. He's, he's remarkably intelligent. Uh, so he was telling me, you know, you don't really need the airflow that they propose comes through with traditional parafilm. And I, I for the longest time, thought it was necessary. He's like, yeah, if you just come up with a material that wraps cleanly and clings well, it, it's, it doesn't really need to have that extra airflow. And, no. And so, yeah, the, it's, the, the polyfilm is, is really not a super special or technical product. It's on my website as a convenience of, of location yeah. and where to buy it. Absolutely. Uh, but it's essentially people can buy it uh, as 
what do they call it? The, the, the cutting, it's like a cutting wrap. The grafting tape ties style. Yeah, that's, that's, it's essentially, that's what it is. Yeah. And, yeah, then, yeah. I, and then I private labeled it, but it, it works fantastic for plates. It does. And I've it's never really well. It's, it, you don't have to worry about it coming undone. It's a lot more clear. So when you're taking overhead shots with the camera, it looks better. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really a, a simple solution for, for what shouldn't be fifty, sixty dollars a roll and then have a gamble of it not being great. Yeah. Know? Exactly. And I've never noticed an airflow issue with the plates. They seem to grow out the same speed that I get great looking, you know, uh, it rises spheric, you know, growth. I mean, it just doesn't, <laughs> I don't see any difference at all. Um, so I don't, and I still get fruits. If I let my dishes sit around in room temps for a long, long time, I'll still get little tiny fruits in there. So, yeah, uh, that's amazing. It can actually go that far. I know it's, like, it's crazy. <laughs> I just feel like, like, you know, if you were growing a plant in there, that's something that's demanding a lot of airflow or that needs oxygen. And if you don't give it that it'll stunt. But I feel like when you're growing mycelium, it's not really consuming as much and so it can get at a later stage especially how fast it grows i just think it can get at a much later stage without having to have the airflow and that that might be what it is that's obviously it's just conjecture but yeah i just think that the mycelium doesn't need it at the, the small stage that you're that you're trying to get it out so no and i've been so that's what i've been able to do is i run a like a like a, a filtered martha tent and then <clears throat> on the other side is i use uh bags and i starve them of oxygen in the bags real as, as long as I can, as much as I can. And then in the open, not, it's not really an open air tent, but it's a, a Martha tent. Um, it, it's full of, I mean, it's just high oxygen in there. It's almost, it's just room oxygen. So, um, I'm able to get, you know, do these tests and I, and I get such varied fruits doing both. I get much taller, less dense, uh, bigger fruits with the high CO2 and then with the high oxygen tent, I get these stout squat, real dense, hard mushrooms. It's really weird. With um, the same genetics? Yeah. Yeah. I run them side by side. Yeah. That's crazy. So what do you do for colonization? So I know there's like two schools of thought and I've, I've never really settled this or researched enough about it to settle it myself, but some people believe in cutting off airflow at colonization and some people just don't care. They, they run it with like as if they're fruiting it and it colonizes and fruits as well. So what do you, what do you tend to do with your grows during colonization? Do you cut off the air or do you let it just kind of do what it wants? Uh, well, I, yeah, I just, I, I leave it closed all the way through until, um, it depends on what I'm doing. If I'm leaving it in the bags, yeah, I just leave it in there. I don't do anything. I let it go, ignore it basically in oh, the, okay. in the tent, I'll, I'll colonize it in the bag. And then once I see, um, once I see the pins, I'll throw it in the tent. And what I've done with the tent is I simply made a, I started out with a 17 square foot tent, a small one, kind of like you'd get at Norspore. And, um, I actually used your tub filters, the, uh, three inch tub filters and, uh, cut little holes on the side of the tent and put the tub filters on there and just ran it like that with a, um, with a, uh, little fan and man, I got it worked great. It worked great. And then I went up to a 37 square foot tent and that became a challenge to try to balance humidity and airflow in there. But, um, I've, I've got it dialed finally. And, uh, 
So, I mean, but it, like I said, it grows two completely different fruits uh, in the bag and I starve it all the way through from spawning out to fruiting. Um, like I said, generally I'll get um, real tall. It's almost like they're reaching for air. I'll get the real tall stipes. Um, even if like, you know, I'll run a Phobos and the Phobos usually has a real short stipe. Well, you starve that thing and it'll grow real tall. Uh, yeah. But you you throw it out in that tent and just give it uh, all the air it can handle, you know, but at the proper humidity um, with just a tiny little bit of airflow, um, they'll be real squat. You'll get the typical squat looks and then very dense. I mean, just hard as rocks and then, uh, you know, very short. And But I still see the same amount of, you know, feeling out the, the surface like they're very they still get full flushes. Um, just completely. So the pin sets are the same. It's just kind of the height and the density that's changing. That's yeah, changing. and I'm I, I have a lot more work to do on actual like trying to to weigh the dry weight because, in my opinion, I don't know that the bigger, less dense fruits are any heavier because they're pretty hollow for the most part. There are obviously some genetics that no matter what are going to have dense fruits, but. But yeah, I think one of the one of the more important metrics I think is if you can get variances in potency. Yeah, that would be a that. <laughs> that's the next step. I don't know if there are there yeah. reliable kits on the market for that. Uh, all right. So I'm not supposed. To, I don't know if I'm supposed to say anything or if it doesn't matter. But I I think I'm probably okay in saying this. Um, so the gentleman at Midwest Grow Kit uh, has a tabletop test. I think, and I don't know how much they're going to be, but I think he's gonna he's gonna be releasing those soon, where you can do a chemical test based on dry weight of, of the concentration of, of your active chemical. And that's, that's completely new. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah. So he's got like a panel test that's coming out soon. And, and uh, I asked him to send me some as soon as he gets them out. But yeah, no. I think that there's either that or you can go to like labs. I think there's labs. Like, I don't know which ones the, the psilocybin cup guys, how they're testing. Uh, but I think that their equipment's a little more sophisticated than like a panel color test. Yeah, well, and our our testing facilities that do cannabis are coming aboard with mushrooms. I just don't know how affordable it's going to be for the average person. You know, it'll be designed for labs, so I'm not sure it's going to be affordable right off. Cannabis testing is affordable now, but just not, I don't know what psilocybin is going to be like. Yeah, I think I think because of the young market, people are going to be taking advantage of the, the scarcity for a while until more people start getting in. That's just how markets usually are, so. Sure. It'll probably be really high initially. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I will tell you, though, just keeping them in the bags just eliminates all contamination problems. You know, running the tent, you have to keep, I usually don't go over two, you know, two flushes because at that point you're just inviting issues with half the strains you run. So, yeah, you're fighting against the weakness of the, the uh, cake after a while. And, and yeah, and when you, not much. And when you're just running whatever's in the air, it's, you know, it's, it's a little dirtier than probably what you'd get in a bag or a tub, but, um, so how do you like the Martha setup? I, most people are running, uh, you know, like stacks of tubs or like shelves of tubs. I know some guys doing like, uh, they do Martha's for oysters and, and, uh, shiitakes and stuff. I've seen that pretty commonly. So I get a lot of, uh, I get a lot of pushback on running a Martha tent for, for cubes because, uh, 
because I, most people say you can't do it. Oh, you can't do it. You can do gourmets and, and uh, functional. Well, you can't do it until you do it. <laughs> well, that's my, my answer back is like, well, I've been doing it for a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's that's a common thing in the in the in the mushroom culture cultivation world is people will tell you what you can't do um, or you can't do it that way. And uh, the reason I ran into that and doing it that way is because I did want to grow functional and gourmets at the same time. And um, obviously they grow well in Martha style tents. And I thought, you know, my uneducated mind thought that I could do it all in the same tent. And um, I did. I do. Um, I just harvested yeah. five or six bags of some some antler reishi that were growing. Nice. Right, well, they were just growing right alongside all my other cubes. So, uh, but I, I started that way and then wanted to. I thought that was just one way, and I thought it was an easy way to do it. Come to find out, it was actually a much harder way to do it. Uh, and then, so I when I s- started doing bags, I learned how to do that and the advantages. And then I'm like, Oh my God, my fruits are coming out completely different. So I'm going to run them side by side and see what those differences tend to be. And so I've been doing that the last six months and getting some pretty crazy, you know, differences. Um, and, and there's some similarities, like there is some things you see over and over and over again, like the density and the, the, the height and stuff. But I have not gotten any depth, like, you know, what kind of CO2, what kind of PPMs am I running at? I got to do that next. And then, yeah, I'd like to step up and maybe do some potency testing and stuff like that. But um, now that I've got the bags down, I've been, I watch you guys all the time because of what you've been putting out. And then you put out this whole tub thing, which I want to go into now. And it's like, oh my gosh. So now I'm going to, because I have confidence in your product, I'm going to jump into doing tubs as well and try to, uh, get a grasp on that method so that I have all three methods kind of, I wouldn't say mastered by any means, but at least have some grasp of them. And I definitely have the confidence in your tubs. So um, why don't you talk about those? So, all right. Yeah, I, I actually have them in the car with me. I, I'll send you some pictures later. Sweet. Um, so I, I, when I started growing active, I started with tubs and I used to drill out my own and, and do the, the pillow stuffing thing and, and, and honestly, back then I wasn't super skilled at growing mushrooms. So when I got the tub down, it was just the, the results were immense compared to what I was trying to do uh, before that. So the great thing about a tub is, is you know, it, it's all self-contained. You don't really have to maintain humidity. And if you do run low, you just spray the inside of your tub. Um, so it's not like a Martha where, you know, if, if one thing kind of goes bad, like if you lose too much humidity and you're not able to supervise it, like your whole grow kind of suffers. So it, it's kind of like a, uh, catastrophe self-containing thing. Yes. You're, you're kind of isolating your disasters to one tub. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I like tubs because it's, it's, they're just easy to do. And, and since there's a lot of surface area, you tend to get quite a bit, uh, for the amount of substrate that you use. Yes. So the, the depth of substrate versus like a bag, if you're only fruiting the top of the bag instead of doing an open, open fruiting. Yeah. Uh, you know, your, your, the amount that you can get versus the weight in, in substrate, I think is a little more efficient. So. Sure. Sure. Um, so I, we, we pretty much played off of the original design of the tub. Um, the whole placement 
where you put your filters is is approximately the same as what I would normally do in a normal tub that I drilled out. Um, the only difference is that it's kind of a little more modular. That the, the vertical, uh, the halfway point is where we decided to cut the tubs so that the lid could fit inside of the pan. Um, and then it's pretty much basic. It's got six holes that are pre uh, pre molded so that you don't have to drill any out. You also don't have to worry about burrs and, and making sure that your filter sticks well. And um, It's something that people were asking for us. It's just been such an expensive product that it, it took us quite a while to start start actually getting it going. So, But, yeah, we've got three sizes coming out. We've got a small, a medium, and a large. So, And it's awesome. Now, in, they're stackable and all that, and uh, they're, all, they're all pre-prepped, right? They're all uh, ready to be uh, put together, so to speak. Right. So they're, they're pretty much ready to go as is. Um, so it comes with the clips and the top and the bottom. And then I haven't really decided. So, so I've got these plugs that go to it where you stuff the holes to cut off oxygen. You know how people do in the colonization stage. Yeah. Except for that's not a universal, uh, school of thought. And so I haven't really decided whether I want to include those in the original kit or if I just want to charge a couple bucks and, and if people want the plug for it, then they can. Cause some people just run them with the filter from beginning to end. And some people plug it and then run the filter when they're ready to fruit. So sure. we're still kind of toying with the idea of how we're going to actually have those, you know, release those setups. But, but yeah, they come with uh, liners and, and filters and, you know, you just kind of bring your own sub and grain and they're ready to go. Yeah. I, I've noticed a lot of this stuff is also like, um, um, uh, strain dependent like you're talking about plugging the holes and stuff i i've noticed i've got like two strains that that if i don't cover uh if i don't starve them completely from the from the beginning of of spawning in the sub i i don't get any pins but for the most part i can have that 0.22 micron patch on a bag and it will um, do what it needs to do for the first two weeks does that make sense? Yeah, some mushrooms are like choke me, daddy, and then other ones yeah. are leave me the hell alone. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then I've noticed some even you know at at the start of pinning, if you don't give them even more air, like when I do starve them real bad, some don't like that either. <laughs> but, yeah. So what have you noticed? Uh, I, I think reishis reishis like to be cut off pretty well, don't they? Yeah, I've I've run reishis to where like I'll just leave the bag closed until like way late. And then I'll just open them up completely on the top and let them yeah. just full force out into the Martha tent, which is what I did this last time. I got really good flushes out of them by doing that, just uh, starving them fairly long time until I had some pretty good uh, starting mushrooms and then or fruit and then um, and then opened them up then. Yeah. The way I've heard it explained to me is that when you when you um, obviously when you give a mushroom more air and you, you kind of agitate it, then that kind of initiates pinning. So I think what the way I've had it explained to me is when you, when you kind of choke them out or you don't give them too much fresh air, uh, it stays in a vegetative state to where it just kind of digests and consumes the substrate. Mm -hmm. And when you leave it in there, you know, even after full colonization, I've heard of people trying to, you know, they leave them in there for another two weeks. And what happens is they said that it, it digests more of it and it kind of preps it. Uh, with energy storage to kind of go into full fruiting mode. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how it was explained to me. And I, I've never really done a comparison with 
with actives, whether, you know, it's better or worse, but I, I know guys that do it both ways and they always have phenomenal results. So I don't know. <laughs> I haven't really committed to one school of thought yet. So. The thing is, is I think a lot of us that are cultivating these mushrooms, especially actives, is we have way too many going at once in terms of variety. You know, it's good to stick with one and try to get it down. <laughs> right. Yeah. They all have different personalities. And oh, like, yeah. You don't, if you're growing 20 tubs, you don't you don't have time to kind of learn about each one. It's just like, oh, yeah, I think I did that to this one. I don't know. <laughs> they all kind of. It will be nice. Yeah. It will be nice, though, to be able to run tubs and get a grasp on that and, um Maybe get less hate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, look, guys, I, I've conformed now. I'm running tubs. Yeah, so. exactly. I'm doing it. I'm doing it now. Okay. Yeah, I'm doing it the proper way. Yeah. The yeah, proper yeah. way to grow medicine. <laughs> the proper, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, mushrooms are, I, I would even say mushrooms are less temperamental than weed. As long as you're keeping them clean and you give them some air and you give them some water, they, they'll grow in a, a ton of, of uh, conditions. I feel like weed is more temperamental than, than mushrooms are as far as having perfect growth parameters. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And it's weird because I, 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 we talked about this a little bit too, uh, beforehand was that I'm trying to bridge this gap between those two cultivation styles. You know, it, for me, it goes hand in hand. I mean, I'm constantly growing indoor or outdoor cannabis and I'm constantly growing mushrooms. Now there might be different, like times it'll be more or less of either one, but, um, it's just, just, uh, integrated hobby. I don't know. And, and it seems like you get, uh, these cannabis growers and that's just all they do. And you get mushroom cultivators and that's all they do. And you'll get a little transfer from cannabis to mushroom growing, but not the other way around. It seems like once you're in mushrooms, it's a- <laughs> think it's the barrier to entry so to have a decent cannabis set up in like a four foot tent i mean you're you're in it for about a grand for 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 everything i think right is that fair to say maybe a four by four with oh a good light airflow carbon filter you know you're in it for about a grand well and that's not including your light bill uh right you right know, and uh, then you know and then it, you know I, I think if you're growing for yourself uh for the experience it's a bit different but if people are just doing it because they want the medicine itself it's just so much cheaper to go to a dispensary to go to your friend that grows or whatever so oh. i think that's part of that reason that you're not getting a lot of that transfer over is just because you can't really get mushrooms at a dispensary you know <laughs> that's it's true a different adventure. <laughs> yeah. that's true and i've often often found that if you got the basics down actually ignoring them they seem to do pretty good i like Every time I go away for a couple of days or go on a vacation, like I just left for four days for the coast for the 4th of July. And when I came back, everything was just doing so well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd like, I, I dare you to do a comparison between a neglect tub and the one that you're babying and see which one does better. It's probably the one that you leave alone. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mushroom, mushroom growers tend to obsess. And, you know, I'm like this too. Like when I've got a grow going and it's been a long time for me, but when I got one going, I, I tend to be overbearing like the mother that's like, do you have enough water? And I got to spray it. And then like, I take the top off. I got to airflow it. And, you know, <laughs> so I, I tend to be, uh, you know, a brooding mother, I guess. Well, and then I like, like when I was gone, I was just 
you know, obsessing over it in my head, like, I hope they're okay. Are they getting enough air? Are they, did my, did my tent, you know, did it, is the humidifier working fine? Is did did the power go out? Did the power go out? (laughs) And I'm like, you know, catastrophizing the whole time. It's terrible. And, and you're right about that. I, I, I will tell you this, I did have to take an extra step and this is probably where it becomes, you know, more cost and, and, and stuff with a tent, but I, I had a, a reptile, a cheaper reptile um, humidifier that I hooked up re- as a redundant um, humidifier in the tent. So yeah, one of those bubblers where it's like a container. It's got the sponge in it that blows the bubbles, and it kind of. Well, actually, no. This is just like it's like a humidifier, but it's just a smaller one, and it's got a, a tube that extends out of it, and it actually produces quite a bit of humidity. Um, they're just not expensive, like forty bucks, but it doesn't have a filter oh, nice. on it. It doesn't have a filter on it, but I use it as a backup system. Like if I lost my power, I'd be screwed no matter what. But if yeah. if my one main humidifier goes out, I have I have a kind of a cheaper backup that goes off but you know that's where it becomes an issue where it's more expensive and more of a hassle to have a tent but it sure is pretty it's it's nice looking at it yeah, it looks nice yeah you know you can <laughs> sit in there and there it's... are some species that are you know they require a little more tending to like i know that like lion's manes tend to turn a bit yellow if they're if the humidity is not dead on for the whole duration to grow they just don't turn off this pretty white puffball yeah well and, and so it's nice to have a system like that that's kind of like perfectly maintaining humidity like there are some mushrooms where you have to have that yeah yeah i find that with gourmets more often than not you know that it seems like the cubes have a little bit more window but like you're right and that's the one thing i ran into with growing cubes and actives in the or excuse me cubes and um gourmets in the same tent was that there are some gourmets that need like this one humidity spot and everything else will kind of slightly suffer because I have to hit this one spot for the lion's mane or for like some sort of, you know, some of them like to be down as low as like 65 and stuff. So then my, all my cubes slow way down. And <laughs> so that is kind of yeah. a pain. That's Do you kind find of- that there are spicy zones within your tent? Like one spot's more humid or less humid or gets more oxygen or something. And then you, you put a certain species in that spot and then maybe higher up in your tent, you put a different species cause it'll perform differently. Uh, is it it pretty consistent all the way through or how do you, how do you find the Martha setup for you? Yeah. Funny enough, it it depends on how much is in there. If I got a full tent, there starts to become a little zonal. Um, but I've got a filtered humidifier that has a very soft, um, airflow to it. It, It's not just a humidifier that just lets out, you know, gobs of steam. It actually has a, a fan to it. That's light and it, it's just a perfect size for the tent. So the airflow with like half full or less half full, it, there's pretty even in there. It's it's pretty even and nice. But yeah, you start to get a full tent and it really, it starts to get hard to get every little corner, especially at the bottom hit just right, you know? So then you got to start moving things around and knowing yeah. your zones. But I can keep within a 1% in that 37 square foot tent. So that's, that's nice. <laughs> oh, that's good. So you've taken metrics everywhere. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's too bad that a lot of gourmets don't like tubs because I think that'd simplify a lot of stuff. But you, you just have to bag fruit a lot of those. There's there's really no, no way around it. No, and that's why I'll always, even if I stop cubes and just do actives in, you know, tubs and, and bags, I'll just I'll always have that Martha for my gourmets and, and functional. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I actually find that more people want functional right now. I don't have a lot of people that want gourmets from me. Um, but I have a lot of requests from reishi and cordyceps and, you know, all that stuff. And cordyceps you can do in tubs, which I'm, I'm interested in actually doing a tub of cordyceps with your tubs. So. Yeah. So, okay. So I think I have an idea of how cordyceps are run, but is it, don't you have to have the, the tub itself has to be sterile when you fruit it. So don't you have to autoclave the whole tub or am I, am I confused on that? How do you actually, cause I don't think you run it to a bulk substrate the right, the, the same way that you do other, other kinds. I'm not familiar with the growth process of cordyceps hundred percent. Actually, it's really similar. It's just, you end up using, I use uh brown rice and <clears throat> you know, I, for me, uh, you know, grain and, and cocoa is easier than, brown rice I, i've never used brown rice for actives and so uh but with the key uh with the cordyceps they prefer that brown rice and so that's the only challenge for me but no you just basically i'll take um i will make the i actually just use an instapot for the cordyceps uh brown rice because it works so well cooking it properly um and i just use all the the inputs which is the, god there's like eight or nine inputs i use and then make your um your rice cook that to a certain uh consistency just like you would with an active and then i do wipe down the tub but you know with alcohol in front of a, a flow hood but um no i just take uh that completed um rice um layer it like you would in a tub with actives and and then i uh inject the uh lc on top of it close it and that's it man and and the rice is or it's just laying in the tub. You just it, it's it's a layer. It's a layer at the bottom of the tub. Yeah, and then you just inoculate with a LC. I just always use LC because the freaking spawn spawns. So you can spawn a jar of LC in three to five days, a quart jar. And so, I mean, I just use LC every time, and I just use a big old like fifteen mil LC or whatever, and syringe of LC, and just cover the whole bottom with it on that brown rice, and then cover it up. And yeah, you can use small holes. I prefer using small holes. You can do the whole loose lid type thing, but I've found that it kind of tends to contaminate a little easier. So I just use it like you would an active. I put uh, small holes at the top and or about halfway, and then I've balanced. I've done it enough times now. I've got the, the tub I have now balanced so it works right. But yeah, it's pretty simple. The hard part is just getting all the inputs. You know, I use multivitamins and kelp and friggin'. I can get the list, but it's it's insane. But it works well. Are they picky? Do you have to choose very specific nutrient profile in order for it to proliferate, or is it you know? Yeah, the, much there's different types of of profile of nutrient profiles you can use. Uh, I'm probably I probably use one that's a little overdone, but there's some studies, official studies that have done on the cordyceps, and with that particular recipe, they've shown that it's. Uh, they tend to have the, the most uh, highest concentrations of the nutrients. And so I've never done the actual testing, but from the official like testing that's available on the internet, um, that recipe seems to work pretty well as far as they And are there, are there no like powdered nutrient blends that are like, you can just over the counter buy a jug of it and add it to your rice and no, like, no, your 
No, not like that. Man, well, there we go. We just thought of another product. I know, we? man. No, that's great. That would be great, it, it, especially if it was a, a fairly um, comprehensive blend, because I think that's what gets down to how much our nutrients are in those functional mushrooms. Is I think it starts with the the nutrients that you put into the the substrate that you're using. Um, and yes, cordyceps does require a very broad nutrient profile like it wants micronutrients it wants macronutrients so people you know i like i said i use uh god i should look it up but it's like a multivitamin kelp meal uh tapioca starch um yeast flakes um you know what's funny is, is a lot of mushrooms and, and i think uh a lot of the nutrient mushrooms like reishi and stuff like that they won't even process nutrients without certain electrolytes. They're humans in that way. We're like, if we don't have certain electrolytes, we can't even process some of the nutrients that we consume. Sure. So I think there's a lot of certain electrolytes that they need. And, and, you know, in order to be the best that they can be, there's a pretty complex balance that, that it's very difficult to, for us to duplicate rather than them just growing off of a tree, which has everything ready for them. So, yeah, that's it. They're growing off of, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, organic, uh, dying something that has all that good stuff in it. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think that's the key with, with functional mushrooms is even in gourmet is to just increase that nutritional content. I think it really starts with, uh, figuring out that nutritional start, whatever blend or whatever you use to start it with. Yeah. I think our shortcomings in domestic growing is that everything that we have is sterile. Uh, but right. when you're out in the wild, I mean, there's no telling how many other myco, you know, how, how many other mushrooms, how much other bacteria and, and enzymes that they're interacting with that we can't provide in a sterile environment. Yeah. Like how many other living organisms are actually in those, uh, mixtures that are providing the, you know, the, the, obviously the top quality wild mushrooms that people are harvesting very high nutrient profile mushrooms just in the wild, but we grow them domestically and they're not, they're not quite the same. I mean, it, that's probably where we're, where our shortfall is, is just not being able to provide the same environment inside of a sterile bag. It's just not the same. No. And I think you also got to be careful too with indoor cultivation because it, I think it kind of thins out. It's like out in the wild, it's got so many different variables all the time, every season, every day, pretty much. Whereas indoors you get a culture used to a certain thing and it's like, it becomes kind of thinned out. It seems, um, I always try with all my mushrooms. I always try, well, not so much with the functionals, but with my actives, I always try to like, if I've fruited them in the tent, I, I might do, uh, the second flush in a bag, or if I've done the first flush in a bag, I might second flush in the tent. So I always try to like mix up. I never let them kind of get used to anything, which probably does have an effect on the total flush at the end. But I mean, you can see my pictures. I get pretty good flushes. So I don't know. I just, I try to keep them guessing cause I don't want them to get used to any one thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, that's the importance I think to me of, uh, you know, reverting back to multi-sport every once in a while, you can't stretch your cultures too much from, from tissue clones because you'll, you'll run into that, that senescence problem where you're, you're just, if you stretch the, if you stretch a piece of mycelium too far, it's just not going to produce the thing. So you have to revert back to multi-sport, start a new, you know, a new culture for multi-sport and then select what you want and then, you know, start your culture from there. Well, and it's so, so much, you got, you got to keep your generations young. So. Oh, absolutely. And it's so much, I think it's more fun from multi-sport in the sense that you get such, you get the variety going again, you know, it's kind of a, 
you get back to the dart board where you just don't know what you're going to you just throw the dart and see what you hit. But, um, yeah, you get to play with, see, that's how people are getting all these killer mutants. I don't know if you've noticed in the last year, but there's some really beautiful strains out there. Oh, people are crushing it, man. They're just yeah. right and you left. The blue, the blue peyote ones or whatever. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like these fat blue bulbous things. They've got these tiny caps and it just looks like an opium poppy. Yeah. Like those to me are really cool. Like the people come out with some really cool stuff. You know, my, my thing is like, it's weird. I I've noticed though, that you'll get these great mutations and unless they're ultra, ultra stable, a lot of times I'll get the culture and it'll just revert on me. And then I'm, then I'm out, I'm back to the revert, but I'm out the whole initial mutation or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> that's happened right. way more than once. And it's like, I like reverts. It's, the, I, I would assume it's the most stable state for that mushroom, but like, it's like, wait a second, I wanted that mutation, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how you have to stabilize that, so to stabilize the mutation, and, and this happens over multiple generations to make sure it sticks, is you, you grow a multi-spore grow, right? And then and then you find the mushroom that you like in there that's producing the 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 you know, the appearance and the qualities that you want. And you take a spore print from that. And hopefully that same mushroom will put out similar genetics that that look like that and what you do is you just keep selecting from multi-spore those genetic traits that you want because what you're doing is is in the wild in the wild nature wants to throw out a ton of variety that's that's the way it works it, it takes variety on and whatever mutants are surviving the best or are the most resilient those are the ones that end up proliferating and so what you're doing is, is by taking it from multispore, you're pretty much flagging nature into saying, oh, this is the most suitable to survive. And so you can't stabilize with tissue clones. You, you can only multiply stock with tissue clones. But you have to stabilize it from, from multispore. So you take a mushroom, you take, take the spore print, and then you, you grow out you know, multiple cultures of that or multiple tubs of that. And then you select more of those same mushrooms that you like, and then you, you take more multispore from that. And after... After a few generations, all of the spores that are put out from those fruits are going to be pretty similar. They're going to be, you know, more stabilized in the direction that you want to go. Sure. And then to, to have, to, and then to preserve your culture, you take tissue clones and you, and you, you know, bridge stock it or, or however you want to do it. But yeah, it's, it's a very long, drawn out multi-spore stabilization process. And that's what and you... it happens over, you know, multiple generations. And that's what you'd call like F1, F2, F3. Is that, is that how you'd call it a generation? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's something that you, you start out with. Say you take an F1 generation of, of spores and it puts out pretty consistently a certain, a certain phenotype that you like or whatever. Right. And then, you know, later on a couple generations down the road, you've got something that's similar to that, but it's not identical. So I, yeah, that's I, people are just using that for for generations. But sometimes the first thing that you like ends up not being identical or or the same as, as something several generations down the road. So. Sure. Now, can you isolate on the mycelium itself, like on auger? So I guess the toughest part about that is is you can't really see what the mushroom's going to look like. Right. Uh, you can isolate. So I, I I'm not. This isn't really my specialty, but. The way that I understand it is, is you can tell by which sectors, what, how they look, how ropey they are, is, is going to determine how well they fruit. 
So when you get some some thick rhizomorphic uh, fruit instead of some you know fuzzy or uh, fuzzy mycelium, the rhizomorphic rhizomorphic stuff is going to fruit a lot better. Sure. It's more ready to fruit. It creates more sectoring and connections, and it, it puts out more. You know, reliably, you have better pin sets, more consistent. Uh, you know, more consistent pin sets and, and everything like that. So that's that's pretty much what that is. Is you're selecting not necessarily a physical trait of the mushroom, but you're selecting a piece that's optimal for consistency when you do fruit. Yeah. So like sim- similar size, similar pin sets, and and you know. But yeah, you can't you can't really pick genetic traits from from those sectors. You can only really pick, you know, suitable sections for fruiting. Ah, get it. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've noticed so much difference between you know because a lot of these albinos, you know, you're going to have to clone, correct? I mean, some of them don't even have spores, right? Yeah, some of them you got. I mean, if you if you do want to replicate them, you have to swap because they won't they won't drop spores very well yeah so you swab under the gills and if you're lucky you get a little bit <laughs> so, <laughs> right yeah some of them have to be babied and handled like some of the like the blue blue uh peyote ones that i was talking about it, those caps are so mangled and tiny like they're not going to drop spores sure so you some of those have to be babied to keep alive which makes them so rare it's because there's only some people that you know there's only a few people that are kind of nursing those to, to stay alive so well, I mean, you can kind of do a clone only style, right? Like until it changes on. Right, or but, yeah, that will only work for so long. Right. Then you run into that senescence problem to yeah. where you're stretching. Yeah, you're stretching that line too far. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So eventually, eventually, you always have to go back to spore. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so. What uh, so the tubs? What uh, are those coming out soon? I think we've already talked or asked about that, but when are those due to be officially going? So the medium tubs are about to be shipped to us now, uh, which is you know the eighteen inch long, pretty much the ones that would probably fit best for home growers. Mm-hmm. Those are coming. Those are right around the corner. I'd, I'd say sixty days. I'm going to have those in my hands. Um, and the other models, the the tiny ones, the one inch cube, or I'm sorry, the one foot cubes, are probably going to follow a month after. Um, and these containers are costing quite a bit, so it's pretty much when I'm when I'm able to get funding for them is when I'm when I'm kind of releasing them in waves. Yeah. And a lot of them has to do with you know it, it depends on how if I get in touch with a big business and they're just in, interested in okay which ones do they want so which ones am I going to be able to get my hands on so it's kind of up to my partnerships. On, on when they're going to be released. But I know that the the mediums should be about 60 days, and I'm thinking about 90 days for the small. And the, um, the uh, big ones, I haven't. I don't really have a date for yet. Nice. So uh, by, like, say, fall maybe. <laughs> Sorry, one sec. I just lost you. Let me get you back on. Okay, there we go. What was that? Oh, there we go. That sounds better. Um, okay. So so I'm thinking uh, fall then, probably. Yeah, so I think our first release, I think the mediums should be in uh, either in October or a little bit before. But we're thinking October for the mediums. And uh, hopefully at the end of October, I'm trying to get stuff in before the holidays because I know that's like gift-giving season and, and when, when people like to, to, uh, to get stuff. So 
Um, we're trying to get those two in before November and then the largest hopefully before the beginning of next year. So That's awesome. And you know, that seems to be, <laughs> this is my first, uh, real full on season, you know, growing, uh, a larger amount of mushrooms in this hot weather. And it doesn't seem like summer is a really good time for cultivators anyway. seems like a lot of people back off. Yeah, it I, also get spikes in contamination. I mean, the, the, yeah. Uh, pollen and spore load is real high, and, and people complain that they. It, it's I've I've seen this, and you can find these in the in in the forums and stuff. Is, is people get really discouraged during the summertime is because their their contamination rates go higher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's hard Spring to keep. Springtime, springtime is 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 the hot hot season. Is it okay? Okay. Yeah. So in, just, in winter, I've known, I've known in, in the depths of winter when people get bored, they like to grow too. But summertime is usually like not not ideal. <laughs> no, no. Uh-uh. I see a lot of people backing off. Plus, I mean, you got to go on vacation sometime, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to leave your house eventually. So what's the future? I mean, are it looks like, you know, you're having enough success that this looks like this might be, you know, um, might continue to grow and and be something fairly large for the uh, cultivation community. Right. So, I, I mean, I guess what's next for us is we want to try and make the tubs as available as possible. And, uh, you know, not everybody knows where the website is. And so I just to develop more relationships, I think, is, is ideal for us. Um, we might get into film blowing and, and bag making and things like that. That's something that I've been interested in for the last couple of years. We just haven't been able to jump on it full force. So, but yeah, I think, I think the next move for us is, is probably bringing manufacturing in-house to the United States. I'd like to be able to make tubs and bags and Petri dishes here. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably where we see ourselves going. Yeah, that's awesome. And I imagine you'll have just the same value and quality in bags. <laughs> Yeah, I'll have better oversight, of course, but it, it becomes more expensive uh, to manufacture here. So it's, it's a bit of a compromise. I'll, I'll try to keep the price points the same, but, you know. Absolutely. Now, and you had mentioned that your filter patches were what, 0.22, you said, or 0.2 micron? So our newest lid filter is actually 0.3 microns. Yeah. Um, so that's the same micron as, as what you would use in your laminar flow hood. So yeah. those are mostly rated at 0.3 micron. And that's under forced air. That's when air is being pushed through it at a high rate of speed. Um, so it's, it's a 0.3 micron lid filter is plenty because you're not forcing air. It's kind of just like static atmospheric pressure. Uh, and it's just kind of, it, it might exchange gases or something, but it's at a very low rate of speed. So we find that 0.3 microns is fine. It allows more airflow so that you get faster growth. It doesn't really choke it out. So we opted for a 0.3 on our, on our lid filters. Yeah, and I, I don't know if this matters at all. I'll throw it in just for, uh, you know, info for people. But I, you know, um, I worked as an engineer for a company that uh, produced particle counters for hospitals and such. And I was a calibration engineer. And we would, um, for hospitals that were detecting, you know, uh, things like bacteria and viruses and spores and such, point three was actually the, the spot. So, um Coming from, you know, uh, that, that background, I, point three is like a perfect spot to, uh, to be, I guess, um, to be able to stop that stuff. Um, anything below that we didn't really find there was a, 
very rarely we'd find something at point two, but um, yeah, and it's, it's most things that you're worried about in the air. I think like even HEPA, I think their rating system is based on a point three. So when you got an air filter for smoke or you've got an air filter for pollen or bacteria, I mean those clean rooms are pretty much at at point three. And I think that yeah. the only thing that varies in those systems is the rate of speed that the air passes through. Right. And so the higher rate of speed that you pass air through, the less that it, uh, the less that it filters. Yeah. So I don't know if you, I mean, I don't know how much smoke you're getting over there in, in Oregon, but in Michigan, we're getting a lot of that Canadian smoke. Oh, okay. And uh, we just bought an air filter for the house and uh, it's got like a low setting that, that filters out smoke. And then you, and then you've got, you know, you put it on a high rate of speed and it just kind of filters out dust and, and debris and stuff like that. Well, I think that's something to know for these like flow hood guys, like the, the flow uh, is not supposed to be a real fast, high flow. <laughs> Cause yeah, I think it doesn't, it doesn't really need it. No. Yeah. Especially in closed units, like the, the encased units, they, mm-hmm. they definitely don't need that much. Um, and I, I guess the reason I asked is because there are bags out there that have 0.5 micron. And that always made me wonder if that's even an advantage or why that would even be out there at that point. Have you ever had any experience with a 0.5? Um, so I've seen people grow things like oysters in that. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure if it's because oysters are just monsters and they don't really give a shit what you get, what you give them. Sure. And they just, they, you know, I'm not sure if it's just because they're, really strong species but i haven't had i haven't seen too much trouble um i've seen i I think there's like there's different steps there's 0.22 there's 0.3 there's 0.45 which is probably what the same as that is probably considered 0.5 is 0.45 i see and then there's some some larger ones uh that are that are micron rating benchmark um but I mean, at 0.5 under forced air, I know you're starting to allow some things in that you don't want. But I, you know, under atmospheric pressure, maybe it's maybe it's not a problem. I just know that some bacteria are, are 0.3 microns and, and even smaller. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, I, it's maybe it's just because forced air is, is what those things are generally rated at. That's when you have to worry. But yeah, I, yeah. I really haven't seen too much trouble with it. Right. And I think I asked you this, but I wanted to make sure I got it out. And how often should you replace those filters for jars, the little ones, the little um, adhesive filters that are used? How often would you recommend replacing them? So there's there's kind of a visual test I do. If you're starting to see fraying um, or the adhesive is coming up, then you definitely want to replace. Um, the other thing is if you notice that it's clogged up or definitely dirty from so when people shake their grain, they might get uh, dirt. And if it clogs up the bottom, you can kind of look inside your jar to tell. Yeah. But if, if it's pretty much dirty or you notice that the adhesive is failing, then you definitely want to replace. I, I've i seen people pretty much with a high rate of success get four grows or four uh, runs consistently out of them. Yeah. But, uh, you know, some people say that they've gotten seven or eight, but I don't know if I'd recommend going that high. <laughs> but. That's when you start gambling. Yeah. <laughs> right, you start gambling at that level. But yeah, you could you could probably get around four grows as long as the adhesive is is good and you're still getting a lot of airflow. Yeah, so that's awesome. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to share with the listeners about uh, Micropose or um, anything else you want to mention? Uh well, we're we're trying to get more stuff out. We got a couple other things in the pipeline that we're going to be releasing soon. Um. 
I don't think anybody knows about this yet, but we're trying to do filterless bags for substrate. Uh, so people that do tubs and they're not colonizing in the bags when they're fruiting, uh, there's no reason to have a filter. So it, it would actually drop the price quite a bit just to make a filterless bag for, for bulk substrate and things like that. So we're trying to get a line of those out. Um, and that's it. I guess we're just, we're just, when, when people say they're having trouble with something, we, we try to pay attention and, and, uh, come up with something to kind of fix that. And, and that's it. We're just keep on keeping on. It's but not awesome. too much longer in the tubs. And we'll try to get those Petri dishes back in for those that are listening. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, me too. Because I've got maybe 50 left, and that's easily going to be eaten up in my next, you know, I'm going to pour those, and those will be eaten up in the next week. So I'll be waiting. Um, But, yeah, I highly recommend you guys. Uh, Do you want to tell everybody how to find you, how to get a hold of you? It's uh, micropose.com. That's with two Ps, right? Yep. So M-I-C-R-O-P-P-O-S-E.com. We're not super active on social media, but our biggest platform is Instagram. So at micropose. And and look out for content. We're going to get some YouTube. We got a a brilliant marketing guy and – and my marketing manager put in a lot of work. Uh, so we're going to get some more video content kind of showing people how to do stuff. And so keep a lookout for that, but Instagram for now. Yeah. It, which is the same micropose, right? At micropose on Instagram. Yep. Correct. Uh, and so I, well, let me ask you real quick before you go then, uh, is this going to be like educational content then? So some of it. Yeah. So we, I don't know if it, have you ever seen the Roger rabbit videos? Uh, so it's a YouTube series. He actually sold a DVD series, uh, man, much over a decade back. But it showed people how to do pretty much everything from beginning to end. Oh, okay. We'd like to do a we'd like to do a series for free on YouTube that shows some of those same things. But there's been some developments in mycology that might, you know, render some of those things outdated. So we'd like to just kind of do that. There'll be a lot of educational stuff. But we're trying to get into entertainment. You know. I think yeah. that's where that's where a lot of that that attention is going is and entertainment. There's not really much of of uh, of an entertainment presence in, in psychoactive stuff. <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe they'll start using drugs on camera like that. That that might be the way to go. Who knows? <laughs> oh my gosh, you're going all the way, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, c- you had asked earlier about um about where I went for my information. Was that why? Is because you guys are going to be doing something like that, or? No, I just, I was curious because, because everybody gets information from different places yeah. and, you know, a lot of the time, uh, shroomery is the place that they mention, like the, the forum and that's, that's where I started out. But yeah. again, even on shroomery, you still had to do a lot of trial and error to make sure you got the right stuff because you never know what's reliable. So I just kind of wanted to know if you knew of a place where you pretty much consistently got reliable information. Uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> shroomery, shroomery is like the wild west, but you don't know what's going to, if you, if you're not really familiar with of uh, mycology, then what you get on shroomery might throw you completely left. So. Yeah, and that's the thing is I I think that uh, and then also too you got to be careful of the the boards because um, the you can't be a newbie on those boards. Uh, so your best bet is if you're going to go to shroomery or like uh, these groups like Facebook groups and stuff like that, you kind of have to go to whatever's been posted. You know, they've got the pinned posts and all this other stuff for information. You kind of got to sift through that because if you make any kind of post in the group or 
and shroomery, you could get flamed yeah, pretty Lord, easy. Lord forbid you don't know everything when you go in there asking questions. Oh, I know. <laughs> and, you know, also, too, there's what's lacking, I think, is there's so many techniques, which is fine, but only a portion of those text techniques are good for beginners, say. And yeah. so yeah. beginners like myself, you know, how a beginner should not start out with a Martha tent for actives. <laughs> so no, that's, that's a lot of parameter tweaking. And, yeah. And a lot of pre-work and stuff. And so, you know, I didn't know that. And I, I think the biggest value would have been knowing maybe where to start and then where to go. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, I think a bucket tech, for um, substrate preparation and monotub for fruiting is where I found my success. Yeah. So I, I prepared, I, I pretty much take a brick of coir, two quarts of verm, and four quarts of, or yeah, four quarts of boiling water. Yeah. And I, and I mixed it all in that, in a, in a five gallon bucket. Right. And then once that cooled down, I mixed my grain with it and then poured it inside the tub. Yeah. And then I left it alone. That's where I found my success. Yeah. So I, I kind of like the tub technique because it's pretty straightforward. As long as you get uh, healthy grain colonized, it's it's pretty much straightforward after that. Absolutely. So I, I like talking up, and I don't care if you make your own tub or you buy a tub. You know, it, it they all work pretty much the same. So I, I like the tub technique. I think that's pretty friendly. And the great thing is, like, you don't really need more than that. It's not something you start off with and then move on to something else. It's like I, I know guys that are growing commercial quantities of mushrooms in tubs and they're preparing it the exact same way I just outlined. So it's not like something like, okay, well, I'll learn on this. And when I'm not a newbie anymore, I'll go on to the more advanced techniques. It's like, no, that's, that's really all you need. Yeah. And I believe the our first cultivation uh, company is using tubs as well. So I think that that was the first method that's being used as far as <clears throat> large scale legally here. Um, but well, you guys have legal growth there. Uh, yeah, they passed well for the state. So they passed the one Oh nine, which is the uh, psilocybin therapy. So now they have therapy centers. Well, therapy centers need cultivators. So yes, you can get, oh, okay. a, you can get a license so to grow. Okay. Are, are, is it that those therapy centers have to grow their own or are there legal commercial grows that supply those places as a separate entity? Right. So there's three levels to it. There is the service center, there is the facilitator, and then there's the cultivator. And okay. so, yes, the cultivation is separate from the, the center. Um, and um, How limited access is that? Is that very difficult to get into? Cultivation or it, service center? Yeah, the, the cultivation. I mean, are they only allowing, say, like, okay, there's only 10 growers in the whole state? Or is it, you know, how is it, how are they limiting that? Okay, so here, good news and bad news. One is, I believe it's going to be like a cannabis 2.0 at some point, which means that they'll probably put a limit on licensing. Uh, right, yeah. Right now, there's no limit. Um, and I believe there's only one cultivator and one service center at this point, although... Uh, there's many, many in the background that are still being approved. I apply, I don't know much about the service center process. I applied for the cultivator 
licensing and it's uh uh there basically you have to meet like the biggest problem right now for cultivation is finding a municipality that'll allow it so even though it's legally it's legal in the state you have to find a city that allows the the cultivation to be done in in the city or in that area zone for it or whatever and so then the landlord has to sign off once the landlord signs off then you can um move forward and then moving forward you have to have a oda compliant food uh food level quality processing area so you know stainless steel hard floors that kind of thing triple, um, triple sinks yeah, yeah. It, exactly exactly food grade food grade basically a kitchen if you will um right. and then you have there's some camera things that you have to put up for security and then you have to have like a a certain size safe i think because right now banking is not going to accept you know you're not going to be able to have a bank account for it so you're gonna have to carry you have to store cash unfortunately um but uh, bar- barring that i mean no you just uh start cultivating and start selling mushrooms to these service centers um from the business standpoint, like from the business plans I've seen, you know, people are looking at about 60 grand to get in and maybe around 60 to 100 grand for the next six, seven years, probably. Yeah. So I would say then the biggest limitation is not necessarily that it's difficult to get started. It's that there's a limited amount of distribution centers and it's going to be a relationship game to get on board with that. Yeah, which might mean that the first people are going to be the ones that have it on lockdown because, I mean, you know, uh, you're right. Right now it's limited, although there are several dozen cultivators and several dozen uh, service centers that are um, at the very end of the process. It doesn't mean they've been approved yet, but they're at the end of the process. And I think I think there is. If I understand it right, there is part of the application process is they do pair you like for you to get approved. I think you have to be paired. So I think that part of the approval process is that you do have someone to sell to, so to speak. Right. I think they call it a sponsor or something, but basically you get a sponsor and then that person is going to be contracted to buy from you or something like that. Right. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, pretty much in every scenario where the market's new, you want to get as many ducks in a row as, as humanly possible. Yeah. So that out of the gates, you're pretty much set up. But I will. I, I feel like what it's going to be, it's, it's just going to be a race. I, I honestly don't think that the distribution of the medicine is going to uh, keep pace with the amount that can be produced. I mean, there's you can have a facility that produces 100 pounds a week, and be like, how many doses do you have to do to, to get rid of 100 pounds a week? That's an immense amount. Right. I think that that's going to be the biggest bottleneck. That the bottleneck is going to be the distribution in a medical setting. How many people are actually going to be consuming this? Uh, well, that's it. And right now, to be honest, I mean, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast already, but to be honest, you know, so a micro dose is going to start you at a minimum of five hundred bucks plus fifteen a gram plus taxes, and taxes come to about fifteen percent. So, right. so a micro dose, so like up to like. Uh, half a, or like three quarters of a gram or something is 500 bucks up to five people, 500 per person. Uh, f- it's the $15 per gram. So it's going to be less than $15 for the, the material. And then uh, 15% tax, 
Now, on the high end of that, you can do a macro dose of up to, I believe, five grams was the limit. Only one person at a time, $15 a gram, and it's 3800 to do the five grams. But then you're also up to about 100 and some dollars for the, the five grams and then 15% on top of that for taxes. So to get a real therapeutic, what I would think is a therapeutic dose that would be effective at least within the first two or three times, you know, you're probably going to spend three grand plus. You know. Yeah, that's 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 a, yeah. I don't know <laughs> if I like that. I, most people are just going to be like, "Listen, I got a good friend that'll stay sober and put that in. I'll just eat a, I'll eat a dose of mushrooms that cost me four dollars to grow, and I'll be just fine." Well, uh, here's the scenario I see. I think that that. Uh, since I don't think that growers are going to be able to produce and sell a lot and they know that the distributors can only go through them to distribute and they can't get, obviously they can't get mushrooms from the street that the mushrooms that they sell are going to be immensely high. I, I, I imagine that it's going to be like three or $4,000 an ounce or something like that, that are going to these centers because that's the only place that they can legally get it. And in order for them to justify a facility that might be 3,000 square feet and have all this overhead and for them to make their fortune, they got to just charge an immense amount. And so that's going to carry over to, you know, the patient, which is going to be paying 500 to several thousand dollars for a session, which is absurd. It is. Well, and it's, it's going to, it's just, it's a Silicon Valley thing still. So basically you've got to be upper echelon to, to get therapeutic doses because in my opinion i mean one macro dose might not be enough as if you're a veteran or you got some stuff going on it might take two macro doses maybe even three and then also some reintegration so it's like that's a lot of money yeah. man. you're talking 10 12 grand at this point and i know that yeah, you know i just i feel like the setting is going to be sterile too like you're going to be sitting in a white room on a couch on your back with a blindfold and it's like man I just want to go play disc golf. Well, <laughs> see, well, and see that, you know, and that's my argument. And, and that's what kind of I'm, I'm coming from is that honestly, it's, it's kind of promoting the black market here. You know what I mean? It's like, cause yeah, when is, you, is this what they're going to turn this into? Like, ugh. well, and the thing about Oregon is because all drugs are decriminalized. They're really not going around looking for people with, with drugs and stuff or anything. So, you know, as long as you're not causing problems, they're really not, police aren't causing problems either. And so it's kind of filtered everybody to this black market or what I would call gray market at this point. And, you know, it's this area where you don't spend $15 a gram, you're spending, you know, hundred bucks for an ounce. And, and then you've got way plenty for the whole year. If you're a certain person, you know what I mean? Or, you know, yeah. or and like I, you said, I do, believe, I do honestly believe that you hit it right on the money that what they're doing is they're just kind of, they're advertising for the black market. And the reason I say that is because what they're doing is they're, since it's a medical setting, they're adding a degree of legitimacy to it. And so it's bringing people on board to say, wow, okay, these might do something. Oh yeah, but for sure. Go, well, fuck that. I'm not paying three grand for a four hour session or whatever. Especially yeah. when you can go buy a quarter ounce for way less. And then like you said, go on disc golf or go sit in your bedroom or whatever it is that's your set and setting. And and do it for five hours. And man, what I'm thinking is because mushrooms, I don't know if you've ever had any kind of, you know, enlightening experiences, but for me, mushrooms are kind of a truth bringer. And, you know, I would imagine if I spent 3,800 and I was sitting in that cold room and I was in the midst of my macro dose, it, they would probably be telling me how bad I was getting screwed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
you know, you can just walk around Washington and get these for free. Admiral. What are you doing? <laughs> or like you said, so that'd, be, that'd probably be part of the bad trip. Like, because I like usually in a moderately high dose. I like, I honestly like right around a gram or one point two sure. of um, uh, PE sevens or what what I've been riding mostly lately. Yeah, they're very nice. And, I, and, and, and in a dark room and in silence, or even with like mild music on, I still talk to entities, like because I I meditate, so I shut everything off. Sure. And so the clarity is really there. Absolutely. And yeah, so I've had a couple of those really crazy experiences where I just realize that I'm talking to something, and it independently talking to me back, and it just doesn't seem like it could possibly be my own wisdom because I'm not that intelligent. <laughs> I hear you, so, and that and that's how I, I am. Insane experience. So, um, it's, it, it's made it very nice for people, you know, that do cultivate in the state in terms of home growers, because, you know, the, the ability to get genetics, whether that's from Colorado or from here in Oregon, you know, so genetics are very abundant. Um, the people that are growing yeah. are very abundant. In fact, uh, one of the reasons I'm trying to get my listeners to people like you is because I know a lot of them are going to be dabbling in making their own medicine. It goes back to why people grow their own cannabis and why people in Oregon, especially in probably Colorado as well, will be growing their own medicine. And so, uh, yeah, and the other thing is like a lot of these cities are already decrim. Like there's places in Michigan, my own, my own state, Ann Arbor and Detroit is decrim. You can grow your own mushrooms to consume for yourself. Yeah. And that's just, and so it's like, why would you, why would you, you could pay a couple hundred bucks to have a lifetime supply of mushrooms if you're not eating them super often right or, or you can pay three grand to have some guy in a white coat you know <laughs> scare you the whole time and probably won't shut the hell up <laughs> well I, I think there'll be some some uh reefer madness style or we could call it mushroom madness uh people that will be maybe of an older generation that will need that clinical setting and and also maybe have that blood pressure cuff on them and yeah all the other trinkets hey. to make them feel safe so and if it gives you peace of mind, honestly, I'm all for it. Like if a medical setting is what someone needs, because a lot of people do trust Western medicine, which is yeah. fine. Yeah. So I just, you know, that might be the, the setting for them. Well, I mean, but, if it's, if it's your first time and you're doing five grams <clears throat> of today's mushrooms, that is going to be a big ride. Yeah. yeah. Then, then it won't matter that the health monitors, cause you won't even know what the fuck they are. <laughs> <laughs> I know, man. Well, I, I got the blood pressure cuff on, but I ate five grams. So what the hell do I care? Like you're gone at that point. Yeah, especially with today's mushrooms. I mean, I that's that's uh, yeah, it's not like back in the early '90s when you got a whole quarter and you just hoped it was good. So right, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's the general state here. I think there's a lot of you know a lot of people that you know these there's states that you're going to benefit from Oregon and Colorado and, and a few more that will be coming aboard. I'm sure in the next couple of years that will be needing your products. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I'm, I'm always for, you know, I, I like the decentralization of medicine. You know, I, I like bodily freedom, the, the ability to select your own stuff. And so, you know, when, when you get the, when you get the government involved in things like that, where they're telling you what you can and can't do, I, I'm not really for that. So, no, and when you can, you know, I'm, I'm kind of happy, you know, doing this kind of thing where I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of supporting people growing their own stuff. That's kind of, kind of why I'm happy where I'm at. So. Well, absolutely, and that's that's where I'm at too. Is I'm like, when you can grow like 
between cannabis and, and mushrooms, and I'm including gourmets and functional in there, you know, not just actives, <clears throat> but that whole group yeah. of, of mushrooms in general. Between those two things, you can grow like half your medicine and half your what you'd consider multivitamins. I mean, you can get half of your life needs in those three things. Um, and with the medicine, you know, between cannabis and mushrooms, whether that's physical from cannabis or mental from mushrooms, it's like in your home, in your little plot of land, I think is an amazing thing. Um, yeah. Obviously, there's always going to be a need. Like I've got thyroid issues and stuff like that. But man, you know, I've uh, been able to reduce a lot of other meds um, as I'm approaching 50 uh, because of cannabis. So, and Yeah, I, I, that, see, that's another thing that people undervalue. It's like you're learning a skill that helps you develop your own food as well. And that, that's huge. It is. I mean, we saw we saw meat shortages and, and vegetable shortages during COVID. I mean, like, I don't think that the worst has already come. I think that there's some some serious supply chain issues coming. We're also losing nutrients in food, and so the ability to grow highly nutritious food is, is important too. So, like, this is a skill when you pick it up, can't be taken away from you. It's like becoming a metal worker or becoming a builder. It's just like that's that's always, you know not money, but a skill that you can exchange for other skills and other things. It's a barterable tool that you have that can't be taken away from you. Right. And I mean, as you know, like with <clears throat> mushrooms in general, there's such a, between protein, fiber and vitamins, like it's, and then the, the, one of the least amount of lights that you need to provide a living item, you know, like very little light. It's not like cannabis where you're destroying the planet, trying to grow it indoors, you know? Yeah, cannabis and Bitcoin, the two destroyers of. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, man. Jeez. Oh, God. The power. And, you know, in Oregon, to think of all the indoor growers and just the mass amount of lights, it's in, ugh, it's daunting to think about. Yeah. But, but yeah. With At least my, you guys have a lot of solar out there. You guys are a big solar state, yeah. Well, we do have a few farms like uh, Deschutes, um, <clears throat> Deschutes Farms. Um, they uh, have a full, um, they're, what do you call that? They, all their lights, all, the whole operation is run off solar power. They have a strip, they have two strips of warehouses and the top of the warehouses are completely covered in, um, in, uh, the, the, you know, yeah, the panels. It's a pretty good, it's a pretty green state. It's, it's uh, white yeah. And they use all LEDs and they use some other things that, that use less, uh, power and yeah they're they're essentially have enough to sell back to the power company so they're self-contained in that respect but not a lot of farms do that the other thing too is because we got such a great outdoor season for cannabis um that we have a lot of outdoor growers and some of them like to use too much plastic on that end too so you get a lot of plastic in the, the fields you mean the, the the nutrients that they had has a lot of what do you mean? Well, so like uh, instead of, you know, like these uh, field growers of cannabis, half of them will do like cover crops and mulch layers and stuff like that, living soil, which is great. But the other half will do just these rows that are covered with plastic on top all the way down the row, like just acres. Oh, the black plastic that yeah. they use to like keep in the moisture or something? Yeah. yeah. And so there's like acres <laughs> of plastic and then it just gets tossed the next year and it's just, it's brutal. Plus all the bugs they've brought, all the hemp that blew up around here brought so many aphids and so many uh, like spider mites and it's just ugh, brutal. 
Yeah, there's really no solution on large scale that doesn't destroy everything to keep pests away, are there? That's the thing. It's a monoculture. I mean, it's it's not like it's, it's like anything. Yeah. yeah, it's like anything else. Anything that you monoculture is going to fuck something up. <laughs> yeah, and bring bugs. But yeah, but uh, anyway, I've taken up a lot of your time, sir. I appreciate everything that we've talked about. It was a great episode. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. So thanks, thanks for that. Yeah, and I'll be releasing this in a couple of weeks, and uh, you know I'll send you the links and everything, and you can always find us, like I said, on all the platforms. And um, I think people know where to get a hold of you at, and I really appreciate it, sir. Okay, you have yourself a good night.